This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. You know, we had a, a segment on the uh, the program earlier this week uh, about the city of Burlington and some of the concerns they had about uh, how the city is going to grow and about high rises. And, uh, you know, they, they've gone to the Ontario Municipal Board and they're going to appeal a decision about uh, building a high rise right downtown in Burlington. And we said that, you know, Burlington is not unique. Well, Hamilton's got its own concerns. There is a proposal that's supposed to be happening or might be happening in downtown Hamilton about a high rise. Uh, but city planners now have put the kibosh on that. They are suggesting that approval not be given to what is called Television City. It's a condo project uh, on the CHCH property. John Best is the president and uh, publisher, rather, of the Bay Observer. And uh, he's going to join us on the program to talk about this. John, how are you doing this morning? I'm well, Bill. Uh, this and this is uh, something near and dear to you because for the longest time you were the news director, and that was home for you. I, that's that's where John set up shop every day for the longest time when you were running the uh, the news operation there. So you know this property pretty well. I do. Um, certainly, the uh, what we used to call the old building, which is the the historic building. Uh, that that was uh, a combination. When I first started there, they were they actually had. Uh, broadcasting equipment in there they were and and they actually had uh, uh, you know they were they were rolling film and uh, you know uh, it was it was a factory inside even though it had that beautiful character outside so yeah I know the building well uh, and for a long time the the actual newsroom was at 67 Caroline Street which is the former uh, which is now the Bentley so yeah, right across the road, that there. old building. I used to walk by there, and I'd see Norm Marshall in the front window there typing away the 6 o'clock news. Yeah, and uh, they had a, a beautiful stained glass window in that building, which was luckily preserved and moved over to the the existing, uh, what we used to call the new building, which is now something in the area <laughs> of 35 years old. So, yeah, I know I know the area well. Uh, and and by the way, I don't want to wax too eloquently, but those were the halcyon days. That was, like I say, Norm Marshall, Sherrington, Beddoes, uh, some great folks. Stan Keyes started out there as a cub reporter, Connie Smith, Matt Hayes, and uh, and you brought this young pup by the name of Dan McLean on. He did pretty well, too. He did. He was, uh, in the early days, Dan was concerned. His biggest concern was that he felt he looked too young. He could, <laughs> hard, he could hardly wait until he got a bit craggy. I'm not sure he'd uh, necessarily share that view today. It was the stash. I think it was the yeah. mustache that he had back yeah. in those days. Anyway, those those were the glory days of CHCH, and 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 the numbers indicated it was a great uh, and and very very reputable organization uh, with some great talent that was there. Uh, things have changed, obviously. There's been new ownership more than once since uh, the days when you were there, John, and, and now there is talk about simply let building a condo tower there. First, before we talk about what city wants to do here, give me your thoughts about actually the property itself and the idea of, of, of basically saying, okay, that was then, this is now, let's, let's build a condo tower instead of a TV station. Well, I don't think there's, um, I don't think there's really anything wrong with, with the idea of building uh, a condo tower. If you look at the neighborhood, uh, there are a lot of high-rise uh, condos and apartments in the immediate area. Uh, so as you know, and, and a lot of that property uh, that where the where the bulk of the condo would go uh, in in the early days of CH, it was simply a cement block uh, studio. Uh, the you know it was a very uninspiring building. Uh, so no problem in my mind with uh, building a uh, tower there. It's just a question of how how towers 
tall as uh, too tall. Yeah, well, that's the, the impression I had, too, when we first heard about this plan some time ago, was uh, was why not? I mean, there are a lot of high-rise apartment buildings around there. You're really only a block from uh, from Main Street, uh, and I, I can't understand this. So, you know, they, they talk about things like sun shadows and everything, but, I mean, uh, I, I, I don't understand why there'd be some negativity about this. Well, uh, it's interesting. I, I had a chance to take a look at the staff report, and, and clearly they have no objection at all to the, the use, the proposed use uh, of uh, building condos there. It's, it's strictly to deal with the height uh, that they feel is too high, and they also feel that the design of the building uh, is too uh, uh, stark, if you will. In other words, uh, you know, the higher you go, and you, I mean, you see this in New York City, where they had bylaws uh, 70, 80 years ago that specified that the higher you go, the more setbacks you have to have in order to not have a dark canyon kind of effect. So the idea of uh, sun shading and so on is nothing new. Uh, it really comes down to uh, the, the building, the design, and, and the height. And we do have one uh, sort of tenant in our, in our official plan that I think to some people, to most people, would probably make some kind of sense and that is that no building in the lower city should be higher than the escarpment. And the escarpment is, depending on where you are in the city, is, you know, it's 300 feet, 280 feet, whatever. Um, so, you know, that, that's, that's kind of a rule that's been around forever. I think it might have been invoked when they built what we used to call the Century 21 building, uh, which got pretty close to being as high as the escarpment. So, you know, I, I think it's a bit of a chess game, Bill. I, I don't think any developer that's looking at high-rise expects that they're going to get the number of stories that they start out with. The question is, how far down can they go uh, in the height of the building uh, and still be viable? And, uh, you know, that, that'll probably get thrashed out at the OMB. Well, John, you followed the Burlington story, and we had uh, Marianne Mead Ward on the other day about talking about what's happening with the high-rise developments that are being proposed in downtown Burlington. It's, it's, a, it's a problem that we're all going to have to face at some stage because, you know, the Ontario government, and I think rightly so, has said, look, you guys, you've got to stop growing out. You have to start growing up. That's what has to happen here. Right? You know, we don't want spread. We don't want urban sprawl. And, and we can have that discussion in a debate. But, I mean, in some cases, like Burlington, for instance, they, they're landlocked. There's not much else they can do except go up. So the question now is going to be how high. Yeah, and, and there's no question that, that if we uh, were – able to design the city from scratch, uh, everywhere where we have uh, two- and three-story buildings in downtown Hamilton, you could probably get, if you could replace them all overnight, you could probably get away with, uh, you know, maybe a, a whole collection of five- or six-story buildings, and you wouldn't need these towers. But uh, the reality is we have existing uh, uh, buildings in the area. For instance, the, the city report points out that Yes, there are high-rises uh, in the area, but there's also some single-family dwellings uh, like on uh, West Sanford Street and some of the other areas along in there. So it, I guess it depends on, on your definition of what is the character of the neighborhood. Is it a, a residential neighborhood uh, of uh, largely uh, single-family homes, or is it a, um, a cluster of high-rises? And frankly, in, in that particular part of town, it's both. But but here's the the question, I guess, and I understand the the concern, and I think I share the concern 
that some people have expressed here is, look, we don't want to be like downtown Toronto at, uh, at you know, at, at King and Bay where, you know, you can't even see the sun on a bright sunny day because of the high rises or, or in Manhattan or, or frankly, some places even, you know, in Toronto along the roots of, uh, of where the subways are. Uh, where the you know there are high rises all over the place, but I, I, I don't necessarily know either in Burlington or Hamilton that we're going to get to that 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 point. I, is is that fear mongering or is that something that we have to be careful of or wary of? Well, I I, I don't think it is fear mongering, frankly, Bill, because uh, we've seen this exodus of people from Toronto uh, to uh, Westerly to Burlington, Hamilton. Um, we see, uh, you know, quite a number of uh, proposals in Burlington, and and now we see that the, uh, the the project at the old James Street Baptist Church is being revived. Yeah, per- perhaps not as high. So no, I I think developers are looking at these opportunities, and uh, the official plan, or the at least the government's places to grow and so on, certainly encourage uh, intensification. So I, I think the future for a city like Hamilton is more high-rise. I, I really do. It, it's uh, it's uh, the stated policy of the provincial government, and um, it's just a question of can we, uh, you know, can we achieve some kind of balance in the in the ultimate heights, but. It's going to be high-rise. I think that's the reality. You know, the irony here is that for the longest time, City Council actually, in Hamilton anyway, uh, fought against this. I mean, there are different areas of the city, including the downtown and some areas up on the mountain, that uh, that were designated as, as places for apartments, condos, whatever. And and council invariably would cave into developers that said, no, 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 just let us build houses there instead. You know, we can make more money in the short term. And okay, that's fine. And and that's caused a bit of a problem here because obviously you do need to have a mix. And we didn't do that for the longest time. So we're kind of playing catch up here. We are. Uh, if you look uh, beyond um, uh, the, these current proposals, uh, most of our high rise stock in this city uh, up until recently was all 1960s vintage buildings. Uh, and it's only, uh, you know, in the last five or six years that the, we start to see the construction cranes and, and start to see new development. Uh, you know, the other pr- problem is that, you know, it is a, a residential area by, by virtue of all the uh, high-rises in the area, but it's also very close to downtown. It's considered to be in the downtown and um, downtowns have high buildings, and so you know, I, I think it's going to be a, an interesting battle in uh, in front of the uh, OMB. One thing I did notice, I guess this was kind of a sweetener. Uh, there, there's going to be uh, over 600 units. They're talking about 375 parking spaces, but they they sort of mitigate that by saying, well, we're going to put in 500 bicycle spaces. But these uh, these built these apartments are going to be selling anywhere from well two hundred and something is the low end up to a million dollars, and I don't think your bicycle community typically is going to be buying these kind of expensive <laughs> units. So you know you got five hundred bicycle spaces, but I doubt very much if you'll ever see five hundred bikes there. Well, yeah, I mean if you're buying a condo for a million bucks in that neighborhood, you're you're probably wanting to park your your Maserati or your BMW there, not your your two wheeler. But you know that's a, I guess an issue they're going to have to deal with. Well, uh, the issue as well is that you know if it's a couple, uh, typically they both have cars. So so in, you've got half the number of parking spaces as you do apartments. I think the demand is going to be for 
double or triple that amount of parking. You know, it's interesting. I mean, the story in in the paper today and that we've been talking about for the last little while is about the the condo proposal that's going on here. But I, I just got an email here from Dave uh, at uh, bkelly900chml.com on email here uh, asking, what what's this mean about the future of the TV station here? And that's a totally different subject. But I think something is very germane to this discussion, too. I mean, they're selling this property. And, and there's a great deal of concern in this community, and I know this is something that's near and dear to you since you were the news director at CHCH for many years, John, about the future of that uh, entity and what's going to happen with broadcasting and the television station. And, and that's, that's it's, it's a legitimate question, I think. Yeah, uh, you know, my sense of it is uh, I, they're certainly actively looking for other space. The, the, the gray uh, uh, studio building that's at the rear of uh, 163 Jackson is largely empty. Uh, the news uh, operation because they fired everybody. <laughs> well, but even with what's left, they, there's no way that they needed all that space, especially a big indoor studio. So that building is uh, they're they're locked out basically of the of what we call the old house. Um, they're you know that's completely in the hands now of the uh, of the new owner. Uh, they are looking for space, and and there was. Um, uh, a revision of the uh, uh, broadcasting regulations uh, a year or two ago that uh, is going to provide some more local news funding. You'll recall that the station went bankrupt largely as a result of the cutting off of that funding. Yeah. It's now been put back to a certain degree. So I think there's uh, some hope uh, for a bit of stability in that operation as long as uh, the funds continue to flow. They'll find another spot, um, and and in some ways, depending on where they go, if they go downtown, for instance, in in uh, you know in a mall or somewhere, they they might actually have more visibility because they could you know theoretically be in kind of a storefront operation where where people could connect with them uh, a little better. So I'm cautiously optimistic that we're still going to have a local TV station at least for the next few years. Hope so. Hope so for the for your sake and uh, for the the sake of the memories of of the Norm Marshalls and the Charringtons and the Ken Sobel, who of course who started the whole operation. It's it's part of the Hamilton heritage and hopefully it's going to be part of Hamilton's future as well. Yeah, it was a great time for sure. Yeah, John, thanks for talking with us. Appreciate the time today. My pleasure, Bill. John Best, of course, the uh, publisher of the Bay Observer, and of course, longtime news director at CHCH at that building. And uh, we'll see. I mean, there's a staff report right now that says don't move on to this, but I think what they're looking for is just some modifications, and I'm I'm, I'm pretty sure that this thing is going to go ahead at some point anyway. Condo development is big. That's two days in a row now. It's been the big story here in Hamilton, so things are still moving and still lots of people that want to invest in the city, and that's a good story. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. I guess we shouldn't be surprised by this. Uh, Mark Smitch, uh, one of the co-accused, uh, found guilty in the murder of Laura Babcock uh, last month uh, in February, is uh, appealing his conviction. Uh, that tends to happen an awful lot of the times when there's a conviction in a murder situation like this. But uh, is there grounds for this? That's the question I guess a lot of folks are asking these days. Jordan Donich uh, joined us, criminal lawyer with Donich Law, uh, to uh, try to add some clarity to this. Uh, Jordan, thanks so much for the time. It's great to have you on the program today. Glad to be here. Thanks. Let's, uh, for, I guess first and foremost, as I said in the preamble, uh, anytime there's a, a conviction in a murder situation, you pretty much expect there's going to be some kind of an appeal, don't you? Right. I mean, it's a normal process because someone facing a murder conviction and a mandatory minimum really has nothing but time. Okay, And if you have nothing but time, you might as well appeal and hope for a chance. 
And that's exactly what we're seeing here. But you can't just say, hey, I disagree with this. There, there have to be some, some elements about uh, what uh, wrongful, uh, I, I guess, accumulation of evidence or something. In other words, you have to say, hey, there was something wrong in the way the, the trial happened. You can't just say, hey, I think it's too harsh. That's right. So uh, generally, a successful appeal will win on an error in law, okay, where something went wrong at the trial level, or perhaps the trier of fact made an issue, uh, had an issue with with uh, interpreting evidence, or the jury, right? And um, that's going to be the merit, right, of the appeal. But it still doesn't stop someone from launching an appeal, okay? And what will be interesting here is perhaps the arguments surrounding the consecutive sentence, because that is a newer area of the law we're seeing. So that's that's a rather vague, uh, you know, uh, thing to say. Error in law. I mean, that, that's a pretty pretty wide scope there. What do you have to be specific, or just say there were errors in law and, and let them try to find out if there, in fact there were one, uh, any, no, any any so, mistakes? Right. So he would have to be specific of what went wrong. So I guess to to break that down, what I mean by error in law is generally on a successful appeal, it cannot be based on. Uh, a decision, a finding of fact, okay, about what happened, right? You can't say, um, I want to appeal this because I disagree with the findings of fact. In other words, that uh, I was involved in the murder. A successful appeal will be one on perhaps how those facts were interpreted, how they were used, how the evidence came out. So it has to be based on uh, an error in the process of the litigation. And yes, that would need to be specified if, in fact, he would want a higher court to perhaps grant him a remedy. What would the remedy be here? Likely a new trial. Um, it doesn't mean that he'll get out of jail, but it means he might get a chance to have a different outcome, and that's what we're seeing here. Jordan, walk us through the system. I mean, because let's face it, if, if in fact this is a given that if there's a, a, a conviction in a situation like this, the Crown obviously is aware of the fact that, looks, these people are probably going to appeal. How do they approach their presentation in a case like this then? In other words, they, they want to make sure that there are no gaps, that there are no loopholes, and there are no problems like that. It's it's a rather onerous task, but boy, they, they really have to go with the fine-tooth comb to, to make sure that everything they're doing here is airtight. Right, and that's what we call padding the appeal, okay? Um, it's, it's when all parties, uh, in this case likely the, the trier of fact and the crown, uh, goes through the entire case with the fear of this happening, okay? And that's why we saw so much litigation about one party being self-represented and allowing everyone their adequate time to cross-examine and advance all arguments so that there is no merit to the appeal. Um, so you're correct in that as uh, these cases progress, um, everyone is you know, aware of this potential scenario. And as the evidence comes out, they will pad the case to ensure there are no arguments or no legitimate arguments to grant an appeal. Because at the end of the day, do we really want to put the family through this again? And which is part of the problem. So in other words, it's, it's, like, it's like there's two goals then, I guess, when the Crown comes forward with a case like this. It's, it's A, they want to get a conviction, but B, they want to make sure that, uh, that, there's, that it's airtight and that nobody's going to come back and say, well, you messed this up here. Right. So what good is a conviction, right, a, 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 a courtroom erupting in cheers if the very next day it's set aside? So that's right. That's the paranoia that goes through everyone's head, even the judge. Because the judge doesn't want to get it wrong, right? An appeal means the judge got something wrong. It means the judge misinterpreted it, or the jury, or whomever. It means something went wrong somewhere. And with cases like this that are highly litigious, that are complex, 
where the stakes are high, you're right that extra steps and precautions are taken throughout uh, to perhaps ensure or reduce the chance of an appeal. What we may see, though, is some valid arguments with the consecutive sentence. That is a newer area of the law. Yeah, that's relatively new. I want to get to that in a second. But, I mean, here in the Hamilton area, we, we know about these guys. We know about Smith and Millard, of course, because of the, 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 the tragic situation, of course, uh, that happened in the, in the Tim Bosma murder trial and their conviction with that. Uh, this is about the Babcock trial, of course, uh, that, that occurred just a couple of weeks ago and the conviction and uh, and the sentencing that came in on that. Uh, but to your point about uh, the way that the Crown handles things, but also the justice as they do their, their charge to the jury. I mean, Justice Michael Code was uh, in charge of this trial. It was rather interesting the way that he phrased uh, some of his comments. He said that Smitch was enthusiastically involved in the murder of Laura Babcock. He said his motivation to commit uh, this murder and the Bosma murder is tied up with his apparent uh, determined efforts to adopt a gangster persona. I guess that's relative to the to the videos that we saw in both of those trials about him trying to be a, a rapper and talking about violence and things of that nature. Uh, and and that was used as to a large extent, I guess, to to develop the personality of those uh, two individuals, and especially in this case, Smitch. And, and and clearly, that that came back to bite him. But it seemed to be a major part of the trial. Right. So that's a you know I would argue a finding of fact. Right. It's a judge or a trier fact saying, look, these are findings. Right. You are this type of guy. This is the type of person you are. And you can't just appeal because you don't like the finding of fact. You generally need something more, something wrong with the process uh, to have a valid uh, argument to set the conviction aside, especially when the cases are these complex. Because as we've discussed, everyone, especially the Crown, is paranoid about having an appeal. Because what it means is all your work for the last two years, however long it's been, uh, was wasted, essentially. How difficult was it in, in both these cases? And I think we can talk about them openly now since, you know, the, the trials are completed. There's another one yet to come, but, but Smitch uh, is not going to be involved in the, uh, the, the murder trial about uh, Wayne Millard. That, that's simply going to be Millard himself that's going to be on trial for that. But in, in both of these cases right now, uh, the, the, the accumulation of evidence uh, and the old idea about, well, was there a body? Uh, it was, especially in the Babcock case, uh, it was very difficult. So is there an argument to be made here that, that everything that was presented was circumstantial as opposed to hard fact? I mean, look, it's an argument, right? Anyone yeah. can argue any, anything. Anyone can sue for anything. Anyone can advance anything. The question is, does it have merit? The only way I can see that being a viable, credible argument is, is if we have fresh evidence, right? If the defense produces something to say, hey, look, um, we have evidence that Babcock is, is alive. We have something that the trier of fact or the jury missed. And this is why perhaps maybe there's a basis for an appeal. Absent that, um, it's going to be very challenging because a due diligence was important uh, throughout the process. And, and, and the uh, case has been protected from an appeal, I would argue. How do you work situations? Because we need to separate, of course, what we see in TV dramas and movies from, from the reality of what happens in a courtroom. And, and, and that can be a pretty blurred line sometimes, Jordan. But, but even in the Bosma case, I mean, you know, even the people that came and testified about what was found in that incinerator and subsequently, I guess, the, in the Babcock case, that, that nobody could definitively say, yes, absolutely 100% true, that the, the stuff we found in there belonged to Tim Bosma's remains or Laura Babcock's. They can do it within a certain degree, 
But I'm trying to juxtapose that about the old idea about, well, if there's even a shred of doubt, then you must acquit. Uh, they didn't do it in either case. So uh, how do you, how, how does the Crown try to build that case to make sure, yeah, it, we're not 100% sure, but you've got to go that way anyway? So no one can ever be 100% sure, right? And, and that's what we want um, in our system so that there is a presumption of innocence. But what the court's going to look at here and what they did was look at everything else. They looked at cell phone data, tower pinging. They looked at rap videos. They looked at everything, right? And what they're going to say is collectively all of these other factors meet a point to a conclusion, notwithstanding the fact that we can't find a body. And remember, what we don't want to do as a society is incentivize people and reward people uh, for being perhaps more sophisticated at hiding a body, right? We don't want that because what it does, it sends a message to people that if you're good enough at uh, covering your tracks and perhaps uh, hiding a body, that you're less likely to be convicted. And we don't want that as a society. It's, it's got to be awfully tough, though, in the, in the Babcock case here, uh, because we know that there was a, uh, a ban on evidence from the Bosma trial, so they couldn't simply say, you know what these guys were convicted of? Well, they did the same thing to her. You, you, they couldn't do that. Uh, they had to kind of dance around that, uh, yet present much of the same evidence. That, that's, that's a pretty daunting task to be able to do that without crossing that line. Right, and now if we can, uh, as defense lawyers, prove contamination, right, in that respect, that might be a basis for an appeal, right? But again, how do you prove that? The onus would be right on the appellant to show uh, that, in fact, there was contamination. But we saw a rigorous process by the Crown, right, to ensure impartiality, to ensure that this would not be an argument today uh, when, in fact, uh, it could be. Um, And that's why we're seeing with, you know, the subsequent uh, trial uh, with the um, co-accused, further efforts taken to, to, to reduce that from being a possibility. One of the other elements of this, I want, and I want to go back to the point you made a couple of seconds ago, Jordan, because uh, one of the things he brought up in this letter uh, is consecutive sentences are too harsh. Let, let's talk a little bit about that, because as you mentioned, this is relatively new in the Canadian judicial system to have consecutive sentencing. Right. So there's two arguments to um, uh, Smitch's issues here. One is, look, the, the conviction's bad, and the other one is the sentence is bad. But those are two different things, Okay. Um, he probably won't have any arguments on setting aside the conviction, but maybe uh, he might have an argument on the sentencing, okay? Uh, and uh, for the, on the main basis that it is a new uh, area of law, uh, and, and, and that is open to litigation, right? So that would be open to interpretation and perhaps argument by a higher court. Could it be successful? Maybe. Could it also be unsuccessful? Quite likely. Because uh, at the end of the day, we have to take a step back and look at us as a society. Um, do we want to allow people to have a single 25-year parole in in an eligibility period if, in fact, uh, they've killed three, four, five people. And we, which is the argument we've heard for years, and I'm sure in, in your practice you've heard it as well, Jordan. Hey, if you kill one person, you may as well kill five because it's the same sentence. It doesn't much matter. And I know that's a, that's a rather flippant attitude, but it's, it was the way that a lot of people were looking at the way Canadian law was. And there was a, a yearning, I think, in some circles for consecutive as opposed to concurrent sentences like this. And I guess that's why the government acted on this. But has this been challenged in court yet? Um, not Definitively, no. If you remember the case with the Mounties a few years ago um, out in uh, New Brunswick, okay? Yeah. Um, where I think three Mounties were murdered. I, I believe uh, 
uh, in that particular case, there is an appeal now because there was a guilty plea mm-hmm. to three murder convictions. And, and, of course, I believe a 75-year consecutive sentence was ordered. That would be the precedent. Okay, So that would be where we would look to follow to see how, in fact, uh, that may be relevant here. All right. And with that appeal, and, and we don't know what's going to happen with the Smith appeal at this stage, but if, if in fact, the, the ruling is, yeah, that is harsh, is that precedent setting then? Is that something else that people will hang their hat on and say, well, you can't do that anymore? Well, it, it, it's at least an argument, right? And yeah. at least something. It's better than nothing, right? So it's something. Of course, it's another jurisdiction. You know, likely what would happen, though, is it would get appealed again to the Supreme Court by the Crown, okay? And then this would be resolved entirely by the highest court. And then there would be no, no issues after that. So that's likely what would happen. There would be a further appeal by the Crown, um, or the defense, again, maybe the defense will lose on appeal and, and appeal to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court will clear it up for the entire country. That's what you can expect. Is there an inevitability to that, that at some point the Supreme Court's going to have to rule up book consecutive sentencing? Probably, but the, but the question is, who's going to get it on their desk? Yeah. And when is it going to get on their desk? The Supreme Court, everybody wants our highest court to, to fix a lot of things. The problem is, how do we get it there? And who's going to spend the money or put in the time to get it there? Is it going to be the Crown or is it going to be the person charged? Um, but I, I would imagine eventually the right person will get it there, and that's when this issue will be resolved. Uh, and, I mean, in the meantime, you know, specific to what's happening here with Smitch, uh, he's, he's not going anywhere. So, I mean, he's got all the time in the world to be able to pursue this sort of thing. And that's the thing. If you have nothing but time and resources, money, or, or perhaps maybe it could even be funded by legal aid, or you get the right to clinic to, to, to advance the appeal, um, why not? Your life is already over. You have nothing to look forward to. Why not try to get it a little bit better? Uh, and that's what's going through his head like the this time. Uh, he was uh, he was represented by Tom Dungy in both of these cases. Dungy, uh, from all our indications, is, is a pretty savvy lawyer and seems to know his, his way around the legal system right now. Do you bring in the same the lawyer who, who defended you in these trials to, to do the appeal, or do you bring somebody else in? Depends on the basis for the appeal, right? So, I mean, sometimes we see in appeals they point the finger at the lawyer, right? Say, my lawyer didn't uh, argue this properly. My lawyer didn't advance this application. My lawyer in a sex assault allegation didn't bring a 276 to bring in the prior sexual history with the complainant. So if that's the argument, then no, you can't use the same lawyer because your whole basis for the appeal is pointing a finger at your lawyer. So it's going to depend on the issues underlying uh, the basis for the appeal. That's what it's going to come down to. Yeah, and we don't know whether that's going to happen. In other words, uh, the story that we've heard, I haven't seen the actual letter, obviously, but uh, you know, the, we're getting a, a pricey of this here, and they say the verdict was unreasonable, misapprehension of the evidence, errors of law, consecutive sentencing being too harsh. He doesn't mention the lawyer specifically, but I, I guess uh, you have to do that initially, don't you? This is sort of like a, a, a lawsuit uh, that you have to bring everybody yeah. in, and you can throw them out at, at, at some point in the future, but you can't bring somebody back in later on and say, yeah, I want to I make him culpable too. It's a bit boilerplate, you're yeah. right. Um, but if we get to, let's say, the error in law, okay, what error in law? Okay, um, did the Crown perhaps make an issue? Uh, uh, make an issue? Did the trier fact not interpret something? Uh, did the lawyer perhaps not try a certain angle? And, and based on that, there was an error, right? So that's where I think we will see more uh, de- defined criteria. It, so this goes to the Ontario Court of Appeal first? Likely, correct, yes. They'll apply for leave, and then ultimately a court will determine whether or not to, to allow the appeal. And that's not going to happen anytime soon, I would think. 
No, so this will take time to develop and unfold. And then, um, again, it's going, it, it probably isn't going anywhere. Where I can see a possible argument is with the sentencing, because that's a new regime. I don't see how, um, at least at this point, based on what he's filed in the appeal, any merit to set aside the conviction, absent fresh evidence. So, for example, if uh, Babcock's alive, uh, we have a problem, right? But absent fresh evidence, um, the way this was litigated, uh, it's looking like that may be his only argument, the consecutive sentence. But again, we, we are litigating there about time in jail, not whether he should be in jail in the first place. Jordan Donich, criminal lawyer with Donich Law. Jordan, always a pleasure to get you on the program and add some clarity to this. Thanks so much for this today. My pleasure. We'll talk again soon, I'm sure, as this unfolds. Uh, and, and like you say, it's going to be some time. The Ontario court's going to have to rule on this. And then, of course, if, if Smith gets a, a ruling that he doesn't like, well, they can appeal that to the Supreme Court. And eventually, I would think this consecutive uh, sentencing thing that's relatively new now to Canadian law at some point is going to end up on the docket for the Supreme Court of Canada. But uh, it may well be this case, or it could be on one other, too. We'll see how this unfolds. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Yet another iconic business uh, seems to be going under, but not in Canada. But the American uh, outlets and the U.K. outlets of Toys Backward R Us uh, are apparently closing up shop. What's happening here? Uh, Marvin Ryder joins us to try to shed some light on this. Of course, business professor at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster University. How are you doing this morning, Marvin? I'm fine, thank you, Bill. Uh, the mighty have fallen. We talked about Sears. We've talked about other outlets. The Bay, of course, has gone through a huge transformation, yep. still in business. Toys are us. I mean, we still have kids. Kids still want toys. What's going on here? <laughs> well, there's actually a great parallel between Sears, what's happened to Sears, both in Canada and the United States, and Toys are us. In both cases, these companies were acquired by other people, often in what we like to call a hostile takeover. It wasn't a friendly takeover. They acquired the companies, and then they wanted to get some money out of them, so they loaded them up with debt. In the case of Toys R Us, they're struggling under a $5 billion, that's with a B, $5 billion debt load that was taken at exactly the wrong time, at a time that that company needed to remain light and nimble and able to respond to people like Amazon and the, the growing presence of electronics and gaming as opposed to you know, building blocks and, and dolls when we, you and I were younger. Um, they got loaded up with debt, and so they've just been unable to manage under the debt. Now, this is a, a successful company in many ways. Last year, uh, Toys R Us did $11 billion in sales, so there's, there's clearly a market out there, but the problem is that that's not enough to cover all the debt that it's carrying, so they have to go through some restructuring. Now, they've made the decision that they think the problem in the United States is too big to get underneath, so they're just going to close up those shops. You mentioned Britain, the same thing, but there are divisions of Toys R Us. There's 200 stores here in Canada. There's a division in, in Japan. There's some other international operations. They think that they might be able to sell them to somebody else, somebody else might buy them, keep the name intact, and operate them, and they're thinking that may be the best way to get the money out of it. There's also, Toys R Us does have an online division that competes against Amazon, and for the moment, they're keeping that going, again, hoping somebody might come along and buy it. 
the question you'd have to ask yourself if you're thinking about buying it, is there still value in the name, and can I negotiate for things like the logo? You might remember a character named Jeffrey or Jeffrey. He was the Toys R Us giraffe. If I could still keep all of those iconic things, but buy the company and, in essence, get it away from all that debt, this is much like Stelco, the new Stelco, get the company, but get it away from all that debt, it might actually have a, a successful future here in Canada. The question is, who might be ready to come forward and spend that money? Okay, but you know, let me go back and, and talk about this idea about the debt and the concern about this, because we've heard this with so many other companies. Yep. You talked about this with Target and others. Uh, for many of us uh, who are just consumers, we're figuring, well, where's the debt coming from? I mean, you open a store, you have merchandise, we buy it, uh, and, and that's the way it goes. How, how do they accumulate all this debt? They seem to be making money, at least at the, you know, right. the parking lot's full. You're right. So the debt was done, we call it structurally, meaning head office decided to swap out debt, and instead what did they do? They declared themselves some big dividends. So I'm going to add debt to the balance sheet and drain off some of what we like to call the retained earnings of the company that were being invested in the company. I'm going to drain those off and give them to me. So I get to, now as the owner, I get to pad my pocket, but I make the company weaker. And we've seen that in the case of Sears. We've seen that in the case of of, uh, Toys R Us. Stelco's a little different. Stelco also had a lot of debt, but it also had liabilities that at least while U.S. Steel had them, they couldn't get away from. Those are things like the environmental liabilities, the pension liabilities. But through that restructuring process, the new owners have been able to get themselves away from those liabilities. Unfortunately, it probably means that people like you and I are going to be responsible for the environmental legacy at the Stelco plant. But nonetheless, that's how the new Stelco got itself away from it. In this case, it's more about greedy investors, people who bought the company and said, now how can I get the most out of it for me without thinking about their employees or or the rest of us who like to use those stores, and they loaded them up with the debt. Let's talk about product for a second. I mean, I, I still have memories. Uh, the one that comes to mind with me, of course, is the one on Upper Wentworth across from Alarm Ridge Mall, right. mm-hmm. which, by the way, is smaller than it used to be, which I guess is a, a story in and of itself. But, but I mean, I can remember buying the Barney dolls and, and you know, the toy trucks and all this other stuff. Uh, but you hit on a very interesting point that I think may be relative to what we're ha- talking about here. Uh, what kids want now. That, in other words, what we buy for our kids has changed. I mean, yep. 25 years ago, it was the toys I was just describing. Nowadays, it's all electronics. So has, has, uh, has, has that move passed Toys R Us by and we're, we're going to Best Buy instead? Yeah, or, or maybe should we say Toys R Us didn't keep up with it. Yeah. Toys R Us focused on toys. Uh, so here's some lovely stuffed animals. Here's some Lincoln Logs and building bricks and, and some Lego. But what seems to happen today at roughly age five, Uh, parents uh, start catering to their children's desires to have electronic devices. By age five, most children understand that thing you call a phone, which to me is actually a personal amusement device. They see you amusing yourself with your device, so they want to amuse themselves with their devices. And, And let's face it, you know, making your stuffed animal talk to you or your Barbie doll talk to you or your G.I. Joe talk to you, that's one thing. But if I can actually get it to do it in real life with three dimension and sound and shoot them up sound effects boy those dolls look pretty pale in comparison they amuse kids but only up to age five so the problem was that toys r us never uh, evolved if you will they never added to their product mix many of these electronic toys that people wanted and as you point out 
if people were shopping at Christmas time, they would go to Toys R Us for the young children, and then they'd hike over to an electronic store like a Best Buy yeah, or yeah. or some of the others that are out there, and said, "Well, let me get the video game for Joey or Susie or whatever it happens to be." And they lost that. There was a section. I mean, if you do visit Toys R Us here in Canada, they do have a little section, but it's in the back corner, sort of tucked under something. It's really hard to find, and you really needed to evolve with the times. Well, exactly. I mean, I, I can remember when Rebecca and I would go shopping for the kids at Christmas time or something like that. We go over to the Toys R Us there, and you're right. There was a little. Actually, it was in the front of the store, but right in the corner, just a, yep. a little thing. And and that's where the electronics with things were, the games or the Xbox or whatever it was. And it, it was probably about twenty percent of the of the floor space on there. Uh, it, probably it has to be eighty percent of the floor space now to be competitive. And I guess maybe they just uh, they didn't catch on to that. Not unlike what you've talked about with, with what happened with Sears, is they didn't see what was going on in the marketplace and and they fell behind. Yeah, the one difference I would say is Sears had some CEOs here in Canada, I should say, Sears yeah. Canada, had some CEOs who came in and did see it and did have a plan, but there again, they were frustrated by an owner in the United States who wasn't prepared to put any money into their plans, instead kept stripping money out. We've now heard about some of the dividends they were paying rather than putting that money into a pension plan or putting the money back into the company. No, just give me, give me, give me, give me, give me, and it drained the company and they lost their ability. Here, it doesn't seem like there was anyone at Toys R Us who really saw the handwriting on the wall, handwriting not only in terms of, of that kind of content that you and I are talking about, but also the rise of somebody like an Amazon, or even for that matter, you mentioned Target or even Walmart, who found ways to get into the gaming business themselves and attract customers. These were customers who used to go to Toys R Us, who now go someplace else. To be clear, there is still a market for toys. They did $11 billion in sales next year. People are going to swoop in and do this. J.C. Penney last year, a big retailer in the United States, who's also had some trouble, but for last year's Christmas season, introduced toys again. They had taken it out of their store because they didn't feel they were competitive, and sensing the problems at Toys R Us, they put it back in, and they did very well with it. So it's those kind of people who will now swoop in and pick up the crumbs as Toys R Us crumbles in front of us. You mentioned Amazon a couple of times. Talk to us about the impact that online shopping has had, uh, because there is some concern, and I think legitimate concern, uh, about you know bricks-and-mortar stores these days in, the, in this era of online shopping. Yeah, let me give you two thoughts around, around online shopping. So the first is, uh, I'm very happy to buy something online when I'm buying a commodity. If I was grocery shopping, I'm going to get a box of cookies or a can of soup. Every can of soup is identical, so it doesn't really matter where I get it from. In the case of many of these toys, a box of Legos or a G.I. Joe, whether I get it from Toys R Us or get it online, it's the exact same toy. There is no benefit to me. This is a little different in grocery shopping where I'm say I'm buying uh, broccoli or I'm buying uh, meat. You know, I like it marbled a certain way or I want my papaya just a certain squishiness because that's when I know it tastes the best. No online store can reproduce that, but online stores do very well where you sell a, a commodity. And then I think the second thing that we're seeing happening is, is coexistence. Uh, as time gets short, and you haven't done enough planning. I need that toy for Christmas, but I only have four days. I go online first to figure out which retailers have it, where do they have it in stock, what's the brand I want, what's the price I want, and then I just, boom, make a beeline to that store. If I can plan, say in the month of November, I can actually order it online, and nice people like Amazon are coming up with free shipping. That used to be the big problem of online is not the price of the product, but the price to get it to me. Suddenly I'm paying 10 15 extra dollars for the shipping, but 
they're coming up with free shipping options, that makes them competitive. So in some cases, if you're a planner, you could do all your shopping online. If you're not a planner, you do the online to do the hunting, and then you make a beeline to where you shop at Christmas time. We're still learning how people are using online, but today more than 80% of consumers say they make use of online somehow or another, especially when they do their Christmas shopping. You're calling me out here, aren't you, about these 11th-hour shoppers like myself? You know, they're going to, I go tearing over to Lime Ridge Mall. What do you mean that store closed three months ago? I, I But online seems to be the, the way to go for most people right now. It's a, it's it's a, it's something that's it's brand new. What What's this talk to us about now about the future of, of well, places like Lime Ridge or Eastgate Square and other places like this? Right. Well, I'm going to give you, again, two thoughts on this, uh, both directions here. So one of the things we've seen is Amazon does realize there is a value to brick and mortar, especially for those short-term shoppers who need something almost immediately. I just don't have the time to wait for 48-hour or 96-hour delivery. So in the United States, Amazon is actually beginning to have stores. In one case, they bought a grocery chain, uh, Whole Foods, and they've started to expand it. In other cases, they've opened their own kinds of stores. So I don't think the shopping mall is dead. I think you'll see a change in retailer, and some of these online people will have uh, physical presence, but then vice versa. If you have been traditionally a bricks and mortar store, you really need to start getting an online presence. Sears Canada was a great example of this. Sears, if any retailer should have been ready for online shopping, it should have been Sears because for years they produced that iconic Sears catalog. They had all the photos, all the pictures, all the stock keeping numbers. All they needed to do was migrate it away from a paper catalog into the online world, into a website. They, among anybody, should have been able to do this, but for some reason they didn't put the money into it, they didn't put the resources, maybe they simply waited too long. But it's a warning sign for other people, say like Canadian Tire, or you mentioned the Bay, you've got to have an online presence to at least complement your bricks and mortar. If you do that, I think malls will still survive as shopping destinations. But I will tell you that the people who own shopping malls, these uh, land-holding companies like Cadillac Fairview, they're experimenting with ways to get more traffic that have nothing to do with shopping. For instance, in some cities, they're adding a condo tower to the shopping mall to get people living there. And again, if you're living there, boy, it's just really convenient to go to that little mall and go shopping. Or maybe working with a civic authority like the city of Hamilton and saying, rather than building a standalone library, why don't you take some of the space in our place, we'll give you a great deal on the rent, and you put the library here, or you put the police station here, or you put the athletic center here, and again, that's going to still bring people to the mall after they get done their activities. So you're going to see malls evolve as well, I'm afraid. Yeah, and we saw that happen. I mean, frankly, that was what they tried to do with Jackson Square back in 1970s, I guess, when they they actually constructed that. I know there's there's a, a great debate about whether that was a smart idea, but the, the consensus, I guess, was, look, at, there's going to be an office tower there. People are going to come downstairs at, at lunchtime, and they're going to shop. And, and, and it seemed to work for a while until all of a sudden everybody vacated the office tower. Right. But, but now that those office towers are filling up again, it is working yeah, again. Yeah. Nation's food is working. The food court is working. Hamilton Health Sciences is moved into some of those spaces. So to the extent you keep the office towers full, now, why did they leave? There's a whole other reason why they left once upon a time, but we're now back in the mode to see some of these people move into these facilities. I think you're going to see it go. Here in Hamilton, another great example of that is not a mall example, is Turner Park, 
uh, on the mountain where they co-located a police station, mm-hmm. a YMCA, and a library all together in a facility. It makes great sense to me because it creates a community hub. Exactly, yeah, and it seems to be working as well. But uh, obviously some concern about the malls. I mean, that was that was part of suburbia now for the longest time. And, and it's not a, a, a unique, uniquely Hamilton problem, is it? This is happening in cities right across North America. It is. It's more actually of an American problem than it is a Canadian problem. Uh, America has a, about 10 times the amount of retail space per person that we do in Canada. The general consensus is America overbuilt on the malls and shopping spaces, and now those are coming home to roost. Now, in Canada, we haven't quite seen the ghost town malls that we've seen in the United States, but having lost both Target and now Sears in short succession, really just a couple of years apart, there is about a million square feet of retail space in Canada that is not being used at the moment. Now, we've seen some expansions. Uh, Obviously, Shoppers Drug Mart has grown a bit. Dollarama has grown a bit. IKEA is growing in Canada and taking up more space. But it is taking a while to bring some of these larger stores back into circulation. So I think still be the case for another year or two or three that we're going to see them sit empty. That's why I'm hoping that Toys R Us can find a buyer rather than go belly up because if it dies, 200 more stores, and those are relatively big stores, that's more space being put back onto the market that we don't need on the market at the moment. Marvin Ryder at the DeGroote School of Business. Uh, Thanks as always, Marvin. Great talking with you again today. My pleasure, Bill. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.